1: Today is Sunday, May 14th, Mother's Day, 2017. And this is Celtics Beat on the CLNS Media Network. And I am Evan Valenti. And a happy Mother's Day to all of the moms listening to the program all across the world and to my boys and girls out there tuning in. Make sure you take some time today. Make sure mom really knows and she must know how much she means to you. Episode 209 of Celtic Speed is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Listeners can go try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan. Game 7. Everybody's two favorite words. Well... Except for, what, World Championship? It's coming up Monday night, Game 7, 8 o'clock Eastern on TNT. We are going to talk to the Turner Sports aficionado. He's also the play-by-play man for the Brooklyn Nets. He works for CBS Sports. He's getting ready for the French Open. He's doing a whole bunch of stuff. He's a man of many talents. and Eagle will join the program later on. He's going to be on the call at the TD Garden on Monday night for Turner Sports. He and Greg Anthony will both be there. We're going to get his thoughts on the Celtics and the series overall in just a little bit, so hang on a second. But, you know, I know a lot of people are already looking forward to this game on Monday, okay? I get it. The calendar has been circled. It's been flipped. you got a, you got programming in your phone. You're talking to Siri. Say, hey, Siri, can you just remind me 8 o'clock? i got to be in front of a television. And even Celtics players, they're already hyped up for this game. You heard Jay Crowder after the game say, I wish this game was tomorrow. I wish we have to wait all the way until Monday. And I like that. I want the guys to get back on the floor. I'm jacked up myself. Don't get me wrong, okay? But some of the things that happened in Game 6 that we are going to talk about actually make me feel pretty good about Boston's chances in Game 7. And in order to really get ready for Game 7, and when you recap Game 6, you have to start at the end of the game. John Wall, clock's winding down, dribbling it against Avery Bradley, takes a pull-up three and buries it. 92-91, your final score. And if you're Brad Stevens, if you're Avery Bradley, you let John Wall shoot that shot 10 times out of 10, 100 times out of 100. Okay, John Wall made 33% of his three-pointers during the regular season. Michael Pina of of, uh, Vice Sports, I think he just worked for Celtics Blog as well. He had a great stat Friday night that John Wall was 29.9% on pull up threes during the regular season, 26.3% in the playoffs. Okay. It's not a good shot, especially for a guy that doesn't shoot three balls really, really well. Okay. And. You can Look, people are playing the game, well, if Avery Bradley just did this, and if Isaiah Thomas hit that finger on and blah, 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 blah. Give me a break, folks. Look, you could go out through any game in history and say, well, if this had just happened, well, this would happen. Well, if LeBron didn't have that chase down block in Game 7 against the Golden State Warriors, maybe they don't blow a 3-1 lead. Maybe Kevin Durant comes to Boston. You can play that game all the time. But if you're going to play that game, I'm going to come back at you with, well, guess what? It's a make or miss league, folks. Okay? You make your shots, you miss your shots. One team's going to make more than you miss. That team's probably going to win. John Wall made the shot. So tip your cap to Wall. I know a lot of you probably aren't going to do that, but that was a spectacular shot, a spectacular play. And if Boston's going to lose, that's one of the few ways we could say, well, you know, whatever. Move on. And that's what Brad did right after the press conference. Went back into the locker room. This was a great story that emerged from the game after the game. Brad walked in the locker room, said Monday, Game 7, left and beat everybody, every member of the media, to the podium to do his post-game press conference, which is, like, unprecedented. Another reason why I love Brad Stevens. But you look at this game, Boston, I I thought they played really, really well for certain stretches, and honestly, in terms of on the road, it's definitely the best stretch they've played on the road this entire season against the Wizards, whether it's the regular season or the postseason. But you look at some of the things that happened in this game, some of the things I like towards Boston. I mean, Bradley Beal and John Wall went bananas, right? It's it's okay. John Wall is going to get his. Bradley Beal has been way better on the road than he has at home. Or, I mean, I mean, at home than he has on the road. And Markeith, uh, Marcus Morris was the only other guy on the roster that really gave them anything. Markeith Morris, excuse me, and he, he had sixteen points, but everybody else didn't really get anything in terms of points. Otto was a, a zero. Gortat had four, Bogdanovich with four, Mahinmi six, Ubre Jennings, both goose eggs. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you look at and you analyze and you say, oh no, we're okay. And going into game seven, got to feel comfortable that your role players, the Jay Crowders, the maybe the Jalen Browns, the Marcus Smarts, the Kelly Lennox, the guys that make the difference in this series. Because it's not about Isaiah Thomas or John Wall, I don't think at this point. I don't think it's about Al Horford or Bradley Beal, although I think it's a little bit more about Al Horford than it is about Bradley Beal, considering what he does on offense. I think in Game 7, you're going to look up and down the roster and say, oh, well, Kelly Olenek had 13, and Marcus Smart had 7, and Jalen Brown had that great stretch of defense, and Rozier gave him a spark off the bench. Or the flip side, well, Kelly Oubre went crazy. Otto Porter went you know, six or seven from three-point range. It's not going to be your traditional guys that make or break this game. I mean, John Wall is probably going to be great. Isaiah Thomas is probably also going to be great. But it's going to be the other guys that make the difference. And as you go back home, and as this series has played out, again, remember, Boston and Washington have split every single game of this series. Whoever the home team is, has won the game. I think the thing that's going to hold up here, game seven, as Boston, I think, will move on to apparently get annihilated by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the Eastern Conference Finals, which is, again, a weird thing to think about. But yeah, you know what? Probably going to happen. Before we get to I'm Eagle, I want to take some time to tell you guys about something really special here. It's playoff season and having the right players in the court will be the key to success. That sharp outside shooter or power rebounder can be the difference between winning and losing. Business isn't any different. Your company needs the right people to be the best. So where do you go to for the top talent? At ZipRecruiter.com. You can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your position. And right now, my listeners can start forming their own winning team on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan. Try it for free today at ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan. And without further ado, it's the one, the only, it's the Birdman. It's Ein Eagle. And, Ian, before we get into some actual game stuff, and I might have missed this because, you know, I get up, you go get a drink, you go to whatever from the couch, and you get away from the TV for a second. But uh I haven't seen you or Greg Anthony go to the Telestrator at all and give us a little doodle fast like you do normally during Brooklyn Nets games. What's the deal? Is it is the technology? What's going on?
0: Yeah, you know, that's the bizarreest thing. Uh, that's that's Fratello's thing. I don't think we've had a Telestrator throughout the series, so... Uh, so sorry to, to disappoint you, Evan. That, that's that's a very insightful comment right out of the gate. I'm I'm impressed.
1: Well, I, I just like when when you guys have that great back and forth. Like I was just going through some old clips just for fun the other day, and there's one of you. With, with Mike Fratello and you sit there and you're drawing like the, the, there's an the Atlanta game coming up and so you drew four different chicken nuggets and he it was for Chick-fil-A and then there was the Drew Carey because Cleveland was up next and Drew Carey was from Cleveland and then you're, the Chicago game was next and you drew a deep dish pizza like I, I just couldn't stop laughing I thought it was great entertainment and you know look if Greg Anthony can't handle it I mean that's okay you could throw him under the bus like that that's fine.
0: I think it's more of a technical issue. I think Greg is, is certainly adept at the uh, telestrator, but uh, it has it has not been a part of our coverage. Although the games speak for themselves, sometimes uh, that that does enough of the talking, as you know, Evan.
1: Yeah, I, I think we've had enough drama on the court as as uh, so far through six games. You have Game Seven Monday. Both of these teams, you know, taking care of home court, both in the regular season and the postseason, can't be shocked. That we're here right now, but how we got to this point? Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's a little weird. Again, you know, you know, Game Seven for me felt inevitable, but uh, for you, Ian, this has to be one of the stranger seven-game series you've seen in a while, no?
0: Yeah, it's it's been compelling because you haven't had a bunch of close games. You had the Game Two where Isaiah Thomas just simply took over. It was an epic performance by him. It goes to overtime, so maybe the final score is a little bit deceiving. Double-digit win for Boston. Game One. Uh, Not much to speak of. Games three and four, uh, it was a no-show for the Boston Celtics. Game five, flipped the script, it was Washington uh, that didn't show up. And then game six, it's funny how sporting events sometimes work, Evan, you've been around this long enough. We're going to remember the final moments, and rightfully so. Uh, Those were made baskets. Uh, Those are uh, little moments that will stick out for eternity because – of what Horford did on the bank, what Wall did on the following possession to win the game. That was not a pretty game. It was was not attractive. But we're going to remember the ending. And that's also what's so great about sports is you can forget about everything that took place in the first two hours and and 13 minutes of the game. And the carryover now into Game 7 does create intrigue, which Washington team shows up they had a chance to win in Game 2. Wall got a shot off, missed it. Beal had a follow from the free-throw line, missed it. I think that's the game that Washington will look back and think to themselves, well, we could have taken a stranglehold of the series. Boston's going to look back at Game 6 and think to themselves, this thing should be over. Orford makes his shot. If the team gets one more stop, there's no more drama. It's all about the Eastern Conference Finals and the matchup with the Cleveland Cavaliers. But... We got here, you're right, everybody felt that a game 7 was inevitable. It was a circuitous route to get to this point.
1: You go to that last shot of game 6, John Wall hero, what an unbelievable shot. And people I'm I I I haven't checked so much the reaction yet cuz I just haven't had time to do so yet. But people are probably some people are doing the whole, well, if Boston just hit this shot or they made they made this layup or whatever, Wall's 3 wouldn't have mattered. mattered. And I think that's a pretty foolish way to think about it because if you're Brad Stevensine and you have John Wall, who shot 33% from three for the regular season, taking a three-pointer with the season on the line against your best one-on-one defender in Avery Bradley, who I thought played decent defense. He got a hand up. He was close. Wall was a little bit behind the three-point line. It wasn't like he was right on the line. You got to live with that shot 100 times out of 100, right?
0: Absolutely. And let's think about it from Avery Bradley's perspective. You just mentioned it tremendous one-on-one defender that's where he made his bones in this league developing that reputation his offense has improved through the years very coachable i think he and brad stevens have a tremendous relationship and a really keen understanding of what's expected of him scouting report has to say do not let john wall get around you at that point it's a two-point game you don't know what washington's perspective is and i'm not sure the play coming out was hey john go take a three maybe it's an option. If you feel like you've got an open lane, go there, tie the game, and now we'll take our chances on defense in a final possession against Boston to force overtime at home. If you have an open look, take it. You're our best player. Make it happen. Uh, Create a a moment that is going to go down in Wizards history. If they win this series, we're going to look back at the Game six shot. And and I, I would say this as well, Evan. If you look at All the players in the postseason this year, 2017, nobody has done more to up their persona and reputation than John Wall has done in in these playoffs. He's had one bad game, and that was game five in Boston. Every other game he has delivered. Avery Bradley did what he was supposed to do, uh, back off a little bit, but close in when necessary. I have no problem with the way that Boston played that defensively. I certainly have no problem with how Bradley played it personally.
1: I look at Bradley, and I've made this argument on a a show I did on Friday, and I was talking about how I think Avery Bradley at this point, and I know a lot of people look at Isaiah, and and, and a lot of attention is going to Horford, who we'll get to in a little bit. But Avery Bradley, for me, has got to be one of the most underrated players, even though here we are in the postseason, he's been great. But you look at what he's been able to do and what he's been asked to do in the first two series, once against Chicago, now once against here uh, in Washington. Bradley's assignment on defense is to cover the best guy on the perimeter, whether it's Jimmy Butler against the Chicago Bulls, which is a very weird matchup for Avery Bradley, but he was actually spectacular at it if you go back and look at the numbers. and Now he's supposed to deal with a whole different animal here in John Wall. Not only that... But because all the attention that Isaiah Thomas gets from the Wizards just defensively, and that's obvious for obvious reasons, his scoring impact and input it now goes up a level. You talk about some people have talked about how Al Horford might be playing a, a level above of what he's really supposed to, you know, capable of in terms of like an offense that can really make him effective. Instead of being like a three option, he's a two option or a two option. He's sort of times uh, number one option. Bradley's offense, I think, has been spectacular when you when you consider when one a. On the other side of the floor, he has to uh, uh, exert a ton of energy. It's kind of like the Kawhi Leonard thing. Kawhi has to score twenty five a game and go cover the other best player on the other team, whether it's you know a guy at the perimeter, whether it's a guard at the end of the shot clock, whatever. He has a ton of responsibility. I think Bradley's uh, impact on the game gets really overshadowed because of the fact that you know Isaiah Thomas has had a ridiculous season, and because you know sometimes defense gets caught under the radar a little bit, right? Yeah,
0: I think it's a fair assessment. Bradley, by the way, is 6'2". You don't think of him as such, first of all, because Isaiah Thomas is probably 5'7 a half. So next to Isaiah, he, he looks like a, a fairly long player. He is long. He's got a 6'7 wingspan. He makes up for the size discrepancy with that length and with a tenacious attitude. So the Celtics saw something in him right away when he got to the team in 2010 as a potential defensive stopper What most around the NBA did not anticipate from Avery Bradley is an improved offensive player to the point where it's no longer a bonus. Now, this is part of who they are. He averaged 16 points per game, he averaged six rebounds per game during the regular season. He's added to his offensive repertoire every year. His deep range is legit. He's a 39% three point shooter. I think early in his career there was that feeling of mm, I don't I don't know if he's ever going to be a consistent enough shooter uh, to be considered one of the premier players at his position. Underrated is the way that I would uh, put it. From a national perspective, from a local perspective, and from the Celtics perspective, no way. Uh, his impact has been profound for a few years now. And when you look at the way that the Celtics are set up, and the Wizards for that matter, I think both teams are set up nicely for the future, just based on the players that they have, the mix that they have on their rosters. Currently, I think it's obvious that the Celtics are going to have to make some big decisions. They don't have to make them today. They don't have to make them tomorrow. They've got a year left on on the Thomas deal, Bradley underpaid, as we know, at four years, $32 million, when you see what Evan Turner's making, and Alan Crabb, and the, the way that things have gone financially in the NBA, they're going to have to pay the piper, and they're going to have to uh, figure out who stays and who goes down the road, depending upon who this first-round draft pick is. Uh, I assume they're going point guard, one of those top three that they're interested in, and at that point, see how the chemistry develops, and also figure out uh, who best fits down the road in the financial package that they have to put together for either one of these two guys, maybe both.
1: And you look at, you know, I think John Wall's been an outstanding. You know, Isaiah's had his moments. Al Horford's been great, and Bradley Beal's had his moments. But really, the, the, the series really focuses, on for me, Ian, on some of the role players. And when Washington goes on the road, it's just so weird to watch. I mean, they are so good at home. And, again, Game 6 they was a, a little bit of an aberration, I think, because... Traditionally, Washington this season has been a pretty good uh, home team, and you've seen that you know throughout the series where they've had spurts. I mean, you go back to, to Game Four with that twenty-six nothing run, where you know Brad Stevens Brad Stevens calls a timeout, I think with like seven thirty left to go in the third quarter, yeah. they're only down like seven or ten, and then two minutes later takes a timeout, and it's a twenty-six point game, and they can really put up points in 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 a hurry. But then you put them on the road, and those role players just aren't the same. And that's kind of what separates really good teams. From elite teams, as teams that can get it done on the road. I look at this Washington team. If they have any chance in Game Seven, something's got to happen. You know, Otto Porter can't go scoreless for an entire game. That's just not going to happen for you to win on the road. You know, Marcin Gortat he was physical on the defensive end and in terms of rebounding, he was a huge presence for them. Four points in the in the score sheet, but again, you take the thirteen rebounds. That's something that you can definitely get uh, every game against Boston because they're not a great rebounding team. You know, Kelly Oubre's got to hit some shots. Mark Marque- uh, Morris has got to hit some shots. Uh, Even a guy like Bogdanovich, who you're very familiar with, he's got to hit some shots. You see them going forward into Game 7. Which one of these guys do you pinpoint as the guy to maybe step up in a big moment here? I
0: think it's been pretty clear that when Markeith Morris has big games, uh, it it usually translates into wins. He made... Couple of big shots for them, including a corner three in that fourth quarter when it looked like the Celtics might start pulling away. He finished five of fourteen from the field, sixteen points, eleven rebounds in Game Six. Uh, look at the road numbers for Morris in Game Five, where uh, the Wizards just didn't have it. He played twenty-eight minutes, he had nine points, he had five boards, he shot at four of eleven from the field, one of four from three-point territory. You're right about Porter. Uh, there's no possible way that Washington can go on the road and have Porter take the collar. He was 0 of 5 from the field. Uh, Bogdanovich, the bench in all, did not do very much. Bogdanovich was 2 of 6. Mahinmi played a role. Smith came in, made a shot, but that was based on the fact that uh, Mahinmi had uh, gotten into foul trouble. Oubre did not take a shot. Now he's got to deal with the Boston fans all over again in Game 7. He actually handled himself well in Game 5. I thought Oubre dealt with uh, the anxiety of now having to face the Celtic fans after the uh, issues and physical problems that they had uh, with Kelly Olinick back in, in Washington. Uh, you're right about uh, a road game. The only thing I would say to, to possibly debate that is game six in Atlanta, John Wall just put the team on his shoulders. He's that good. If he has one of those kinds of games, you might throw all of the conventional wisdom out the window about the role players. Uh, he's he's just one of those players now, and you have to at least be aware of it from the Boston perspective that Wall can wreck your season. He's capable of that individually.
1: Yeah, I mean he's when the when the ball's in his hands and he gets a full head of steam, it's almost impossible for him to stop. And I've made the argument since the, the beginning of the series that Boston would be a problem for Washington because of the way they're set up uh you know their strength of their defense is on the perimeter whether it's you know Avery Bradley who again has been brilliant Marcus Smart and Spurts has been able to handle both Bradley Beal and John Wall Jay Crowder is a pretty good perimeter player in terms of def- defensive uh, uh style and, and sometimes he gets you know I I, th- I think there's something lingering there he hasn't been nearly the same guy as he was last year and they've gotten great contributions from two guys that I didn't think they'd get them from defensively Terry Rozier who uh everybody killed Danny for picking two years ago out of the draft, one pick behind Kelly Oubre, which I think is funny because when you consider I think Danny probably would have picked Oubre if Oubre had fell to 16 in that draft. And Jalen Brown, who has come off the bench after not playing at all against Chicago, coming off the bench, giving them solid minutes as a as a rookie, playing good defense. I mean, look, he gets lost sometimes defensively, especially when there's a lot of off-ball action, and he gets mm-hmm. screened. And he gets lost a little bit, but his ability to stay on a guy like Bogdanovich, who is a unbelievably good shooter when he has his feet set, uh, to make life difficult for him for Bradley Beal. I look at those two guys, and in Game Seven, you have these two younger guys. If you're Brad Stevens. You know How quick do you think the, the trigger is going to be on pulling these guys out if they don't really have it defensively?
0: Yeah, that's the other part of the equation. It is a Game 7, and you just don't know how guys are going to react to the pressure of that moment. Uh, you look at the two teams. I've, I've been doing a little bit of research today. Mahini has played in two Game 7s. Gortat has played in a Game 7. Jennings has played in a Game 7 for Washington. For Boston, Horford has played in two Game 7s lost one in Boston in 08 as a member of the Hawks, won one against Milwaukee in 2010. Amir Johnson a Game 7, Crowder a Game 7, Gerald Green a Game 7. That's it. And when I say they played in it, I'm not talking about they were being asked to do much more than their role. These are not guys... That were necessarily stars on their team. Horford would be the closest one to it. Mahinmi, backup role. Gortat, backup role. Jennings was a starter for that Milwaukee team. Johnson, role player with Toronto. Uh, Crowder, going back to his Dallas days. Uh, He was a young player. He was not expected to do much. Green was a bit player last year for Miami. So uh, when you combine the excitement and exhilaration of a Game 7 plus the pressure and the anxiety and the angst, you don't know what you're going to get. You have no idea what you're going to get. If you're Brad Stevens, you have your finger on the pulse. You have a good uh, feel for your team. Uh, If he doesn't see it from the likes of Brown and Rozier in their limited minutes, then we know what the reaction's going to be. He's, He's not going to ride with it. He's going to make the changes necessary. The thing that stood out to me, we called game five, They were so locked in, Boston, defensively. And right from the start, you could tell that Washington was not going to get easy finishes around the rim. They were going to end up on their backside. Their guards did. Wall, Beal, those officials allowed some things to happen. I thought Game 6 was being called a bit tighter. And I thought the teams came out a bit tighter in Game 6 compared to Game 5. How that manifests itself in Game 7, we don't know the officiating crew yet, and we don't know how these guys are going to handle the stress of uh, an elimination game on both ends.
1: Yeah, and if I'm Stevens, there's one piece that I I think that Washington has a little bit uh, of trouble solving, and that's Al Horford. He's averaging 17-7-5 in this series on 69% shooting from the field and 57% from three-point range. And I've argued... (laughs) He's been the MVP of the Celtics for the entire playoffs, not just this one in particular. I think since Game 1 against Chicago, he's been their best player. And, you know, I don't know if this is news to you, Ian, but there were people at one point during the season, all throughout the season, in the Boston media, Celtics fans, and national media everywhere, that gave Horford a hard time throughout the season because some felt like he wasn't living up to his contract. For you, does that seem kind of crazy considering what he's doing right now? He's been unbelievable.
0: Yeah, it does. Now, I must admit, I I obviously don't see every Celtic game. I know that Horford isn't the flashiest of guys. He'll make flashy plays with his passing more than anything else. But his game is not based on power, and he doesn't do it in the most demonstrative of fashions. I think he's one of those players, if you're a true basketball guy, you really appreciate what he brings to the floor if you're just looking at it on a superficial level uh, there are times where you might not be as impressed he's so savvy uh, he brings stability and consistency you know what you're gonna get from him he's been a winner he's a winner uh, go back to the college days obviously at Florida would be back-to-back national titles in Atlanta he was part of a winning culture No, they never went to the NBA Finals. But if you remember, as they changed that team around, Joe Johnson and Josh Smith and uh, Marvin Williams, they they then had to pivot to something else. And all those other guys left. And who was left there standing? Al Horford. They were building the team around him. They were a consistent playoff team. And I think he was the reason why. He was the key. His mid-range game is outstanding he is not your prototypical big man so with that you can't really put him in a box to say this is who he is and this is what he does uh, he's one of those guys that grows on you the more you watch him his facilitating and his ability to get his teammates involved unselfishness uh, i'm not surprised at the success that he's having but again because it's not in your face and it's not overly demonstrative. I think there are times where people can take him for granted.
1: Now, I'm, I, I, I got a couple more before we get out of here. Your court side for for Isaiah Thomas's 53-point explosion in Boston, their Game 2 overtime win, best game of his life, especially when you consider... Tragedies going through with his family and about his sister, uh, the fact that he was going through surgery for two straight days before that game, follow-up procedures all on his mouth. And look, I don't mean to bring light to this, but something people that might that might not know this about you, but you, me, and Isaiah are all similar in height. And actually, out of all three of us, I'm pretty sure I'm the shortest out of all of us. So I, I'll take that. But when you're doing a game and you watch Isaiah, who's five foot seven and a half, maybe. How many times do the game do you, see, do you say to yourself, holy crap, how does this guy even do this? Yeah,
0: uh, it, it did strike me in the moment. I I still have a ringing in my left ear from that game, by the way. That's how loud it was inside TD Garden. And considering all the circumstances that you just alluded to, what I had to fight myself on as a play-by-play guy was I didn't want it to be mellow dramatic. I didn't want this to, to blend over into that area. We knew what was happening, and David Aldrich had told us, our sideline reporter, that uh, it happened to be uh, the day of his late sister's birthday. So uh, as, as a play-by-play guy, you want to fight that a bit because I thought the game was, was providing the narrative, and that's all we needed. The guy put up 53 points in a playoff game. Uh, The the tooth part of it was a little bit more of a story for me because it was a physical part. It was something we could see. He was struggling with it pregame. He was checking it out in his phone, taking a picture to see where the tooth was hitting the gum, having been through that in my life, unfortunately. Oh, my God, I've never had a cavity, by the way, Evan. I'm (laughs) a a personal tidbit. I have fake teeth. I went over my handlebars as a 14-year-old, and I banged my my face right on the pavement and knocked out two teeth in the process so i've had issues with that and i know how painful it could be and i know how much it can screw with you because you just don't feel right he didn't feel right yet he had the game of his life Uh, it was from an announcer's perspective i've been doing the nba for 23 years it's going to go down as as one of the best performances I've ever called and then you blend it with all the other storylines. Yes, you're right. There were moments in that game uh that, that I began to, to question, how is this guy doing this and how is this five foot seven and a half man dominating the NBA playoffs right now, the way that he
1: is. You know, Tommy Heinsohn always does this thing, and Tommy Heinsohn's known for hyperbole around these parts, so you always kind of take every comparison he has with a grain of salt. It's like, oh, it's just Tommy being Tommy. He, look, he's won rings as a player, rings as a coach, he's been a broadcaster for years. I let Tommy do his thing because he's kind of earned that right, I think, at this point. Um, but he always, he, he's, he talks about how there's only, there's only been three guys in Suffolk's history that have made him say, wow, I can't believe he's doing this. Bill Russell, who he talks about in the highest regard of any player in NBA history, Larry Bird, who obviously with some of the things that he was able to do as a player, whether it's you know with via the pass or you know taking an entire game where he shot left-handed against the Hawks, um, or basically just any clutch moment ever that Larry's ever had. And he, the third person listed on this list is Isaiah Thomas because of the guy that's five foot. This game is not meant for a guy five foot seven to go out there and score thirty points a game. Bill Simmons I thought had one of his best articles in a while on the Ringer where he talked about how Isaiah Thomas basically has blossomed into this player. At the perfect time for him in NBA history, this wouldn't have happened in, in in years prior. This wouldn't happen in the old NBA. This wouldn't happen in the 90s. Wouldn't happen in the 80s. But now, since we're in this new age NBA where everybody can kind of shoot everybody can kind of play make for themselves at any position whether you're a guard or a center you know Isaiah Thomas has been able to find a way to be effective and the fact that this guy at 5 foot 7 and like again I, I tell my friends all the time you don't really appreciate it as much as everybody like i i get a little bit different appreciation for this because imagining myself Going out in NBA, like I can't play basketball that much just because everybody else is six foot one, six foot two, and I play with, and they don't usually block my shots. But you have a guy out there, and Isaiah Thomas, 5'7", seven, and he and he routinely attacks guys like Rudy Gobert, who has a wing that goes on forever. DeAndre Jordan, who was one of the best defensive centers in the league, he routinely goes at these guys and makes them look silly. It's unbelievable to watch, and I can't imagine for you sitting there keeping yourself in check when you're watching this this little guy out there dominate guys that are twice his size almost.
0: Yeah, it's, it's such a unique story, but he's such a unique player, and uh, I know he's really strong for his size, so let's at least uh, acknowledge that whatever he's got, he's made the most of. He's tough, he's competitive, he's fearless, But look, there were two teams in the NBA, two teams right now that are struggling as franchises, trying to figure out what their future is, and uh, trying to come up with a, a winning formula. Two other organizations did not see Isaiah Thomas in their respective futures, Sacramento and Phoenix. Two teams gave up on him, and they got to see him every day and see what he was all about. So everything that we're saying now and he deserves incredible praise it's not as if it's been this completely easy road and every scout saw in him what we're seeing today they saw the faults they saw the height and they saw the challenges that were going to come with a player of his stature and size defensively it's still an issue it's it's not something that just goes away they have to hide him And teams are going to look to take advantage, and I'm sure in Game 7 they're going to test it. Uh, If he's matched up with Beal, then they're going to post up Beal. If he's matched up with Wall, they're going to post up Wall. They're going to attack Isaiah Thomas on that end of the floor. But what he brings to the team and the inspirational part of it, and then if you talk to his teammates about him, uh, you see that he's resonated with everybody. They, They feed off of him. Uh, he didn't have to have the epic game in order for the Boston Celtics to advance. There have been others, but in a Game 7 where we know reputations are made, you have to believe that Isaiah Thomas, with with the, the lights on, is going to step forward and, and be a factor in this game.
1: Good shot in this last question, I, I know, uh, first off, appreciate the time today, but uh, I, I'm not going to make you pick. Uh, a, a winner in this thing, you got to do the game uh, on Monday, so it's not like I, I just don't want to make you pick. something, but in terms of of um, a question, I'll frame it this way because anybody can win one game. It's not like um, there's I, I, again the home team has won every game so far this series, both postseason and regular season. But I think anybody can win this game. Um, so I'll make you I'll make you do it this way. Um, team X will win Game Seven unless Team Y does this. Like for me, I think Boston wins Game Seven. Unless the Wizards find a way on the offensive side of the ball to, to get into the paint routinely, whether that's getting you to the free, free throw line or resulting in points at the, uh, at the rim, doesn't matter. And defensively, I think they have to find a way to limit Al Horford's damage because what he's able to do, you know, as a facilitator on the offensive side of the floor to set guys up, uh, whether it's via the backdoor cut or it's a pick and roll or a pick and pop or whatever, they have to find a way to limit his damage. So for you, Ian, Team X will win game seven unless Team Y does what?
0: I think Boston wins Game 7 unless John Wall just has one of these historic performances uh, similar to his Game 6 in Atlanta where he just takes over the game. And uh, I do believe that that Wall has the ability to do that. I think Washington wins a Game 7 unless uh, they are completely out of sorts like we've seen on a couple of occasions where they're so disjointed offensively. There were stretches in game six where I didn't know if the Wizards could get it together. Uh, When Boston began to pull away in the fourth quarter, uh, there were moments where I thought this thing was done, truly done. Uh, Crowd was a non-factor, energy from the team was shaky, Late second quarter, into the third quarter, concerns were starting to pop up, but they've had answers. Washington's had answers throughout the season. They have not been a great road team. In these playoffs, the lone road win was the game six against Atlanta. In the regular season, they were sub-500 on the road. They were 19-22. and 22. They were 1-5 in the postseason on the road. Uh, I... I don't know if they can just rely on Wall. If Wall doesn't have it, if he doesn't have that epic performance, I don't know. I don't know if Washington uh, has has all the answers on the road in a Game 7.
1: I happen to agree with you on that one. I think it's going to be a fun one, Game 7. Everybody's two favorite words in sports. Can't wait for tip-off Monday night at 8 o'clock, TNT. Ian Eagle's going to be on the call uh, for Turner Sports. He's a play-by-play guy for the Brooklyn Nets. You can hear him pretty much all throughout the year, whether it's football, whether it's the French Open, which you're getting ready for. Um, Ian, thank you for the time today. Get some rest. I know you have a lot coming up. Take some time, relax, and then uh, we'll, get, we'll see you hopefully soon for maybe some more basketball. All
0: right, I'm excited. Really looking forward to it. Wish we could uh, do it right now, in fact.
1: Once again, big shout-out to Ian Eagle. He's half the play-by-play voice for the Brooklyn Nets and the S-Network. You can hear him throughout the football season on CBS. Again, he's been doing a lot of stuff with Turner Sports uh, for the NBA playoffs. He's getting ready for the French Open. He somehow, someway, found some time to talk with us here on Celtic Speed. So big shout-out to Ian for joining us. Here on this show. And there are a couple of things that he talked about that I think are pretty relevant as we get, again, ready for Game 7. The fact that playoff experience matters. Game Seven experience specifically matters. Okay, And in this situation, some of the more key guys. Like I know Al Horford's going to be a key guy for Boston. He has Game 7 experience. I think that is going to be important. Especially when you consider his voice in the locker room. I mean, you, you heard about during Game Five where Boston had a little internal spat in the locker room, and Al Horford went up to everybody and pretty much calmed things down. That calming voice is going to be big here in Game Seven because as things get out of control, and you know Isaiah's never been through a Game Seven, John has never been through a Game Seven. These are two guys that you know control the pace of the game for their respective teams. Having got like Al Horford to lean on a little bit to to calm things down and get everybody back on track is going to be big. You know, Isaiah talking with Paul Pierce, talking with Kobe Bryant throughout the playoffs, I think is a big deal. Isaiah's lucky to have that. You know, not everybody has those kind of mentors available for them. Isaiah, because he's gone through so much, because he's proven himself over and over again, and because he plays an organization in Boston that has a rich tradition, has all these tools available to him, which is a huge plus. But when you get into game seven, you have to be careful, again, when you're either team, of letting things snowball out of control. You know, If a turnover happens, forget about it. Go back down there and play the next play. It's what Brad talks about every every single game. Possessions matter. Turnovers matter. Value the basketball. Get good shots. And good things are going to tend to happen. In this particular game, just going to throw it out there, I think Boston wins. I think it's a, a decent game for Isaiah Thomas. I think he gets into 20 points again. You know, Maybe 7 or 8 assists. But again, I think the key to this game has been the key for the entire series. We talked about the bench stepping up big. But once again, Al Horford, finding a way to get him comfortable, get him going early on, is going to be huge. Avery Bradley, shooting well in the first quarter, going to be a big part of this. Jay Crowder needs to play better on the offensive side of the ball. And somebody from the bench, anybody from the bench, needs to get going. I want to thank you all for tuning in here on this Mother's Day. It's been a real pleasure to come to you guys on this Mother's Day. Uh, I'm Evan Valenti. You can follow me on Twitter at Evan Valenti, E-V-A-N-V-A-L-E-N-T-I. A couple of shout-outs here. Our CEO, Nick Gelso, the executive producer of this show, Larry H. Russell. For Chuck Dietz and for Steph LeGrateau, the maestros of the music. Staff writer, Eddie Santiago. I'm Evan Valenti. I'll see you guys next time, next Sunday, on Celtics Speed, powered by CLNS Media.